much, Choir Ben. The year was 1976. The place was Mississippi College, the uh, chapel there. Uh, I was a student at that Baptist school. I don't know if Baylor and Whalen and Hardin Simmons do this anymore, but you had to go to chapel, and it was required. Now, I always thought that. I didn't know much about Baptist theology, but I thought that was weird that Baptists made people worship. That's the whole antithesis to Baptist. Uh, the whole Baptist vision is that worship and faith is voluntary. I made that point unsuccessfully. <laughs> so there I was, and my carcass my, was in my chair, and the proctor at the back of the chapel was making sure that my chair was occupied. I brought my newspaper, as was typically the case for chapel, uh, we had to go on Mondays and Wednesdays, and I would either do my homework or I would read the newspaper along with uh, all the rest of the in, uh, recalcitrant freshman students, and the speakers were boring, boring with a capital B. But on this particular, because they had Baptist preachers generally come as an honorific to fill the pulpit. But on this particular day, there was a Baptist preacher there. He had just come to Jackson, Mississippi from the Broadway Baptist Church of Fort Worth, Texas. And oh, he, when he started preaching, uh, there was something different about this guy. He had a deep voice, very, very deep, lower than God's as we uh, later said. It was a gravelly kind of tone. It was a thick southern accent. And about minute seven into his sermon, I put my newspaper down. And I looked around that chapel and I saw even 18-year-old knuckle-headed kids folding up their notebooks and folding up their papers and scooting more on the edge of their seat as this preacher talked. I remember the sermon. Can you believe that miracle of miracles about getting stuck in mirror relationships and how racism and religious bigotry stems from this dysfunction of only wanting to be with somebody like me? I remember that to this day because John Claypool spoke with authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees speak. Jesus is entering the temple in Jerusalem and the clerics, the hired hands for God, meet him at the door and ask him, by what authority are you saying and doing these things? Jesus, shrewd teacher that he is, responds to the question with a question, okay? I'll answer that question, by what authority do I have, if you'll answer this. What authority was the baptism of John? Because if you'll remember from the early reports of the gospel lessons, John was baptizing at the Jordan River and even the Pharisees came out to be baptized by him. You remember that? And the soldiers in Luke chapter 4 and even the tax collectors? By what authority did John, who was a mentor for Jesus, and as I have said before, you will hear me say it because I think it's a very uh, important article of interpretation of New Testament theology. John was Jesus' mentor, and John had a bigger following than Jesus. 
And that's why some, even after John's execution, thought Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead, his first cousin. Jesus looked up to John. And he asked the preachers there in the temple, what was John's authority? They all huddled up over in the corner. If we say that his authority was from God, why the, Jesus will ask us, why didn't we follow him? Why didn't that baptism take? Why didn't you believe him? If we say it's of human origin, why all the people remember John was a great prophet, we'll have an insurrection on our hands. And Jesus said, if you cannot answer by what authority John the baptizer had, because he came in the way of righteousness, what that means is John the baptizer kept your rules. I'm not keeping your rules because my program is different. And then Jesus looked those preachers in the eye and said, prostitutes and tax collectors will enter the kingdom before you because they know they have need of God and you don't. The ability to author, the first time I ever heard anyone define authority in that way was Ted Dodds in the life of this church, that great Methodist minister. The ability to bring something out of nothing, to write a new story, the ability to author, that is the proper definition of authority. It's not political, it's not positional. It's not something that is voted by a plebiscite. It is something that comes from within. It is the power to make something new. And I think that there are at least three components to, uh, to authority that I'd like to briefly touch on. Creativity, integrity, and humility. And our text today, as they weave together, will tell us the ability to author. God spoke creation into existence. And God said, and there was. And God said, and there was. That creativity. Later on, the prophets came to call us back to this creative impulse of God. It's not about rules and regulations. Jeremiah says, thus saith the Lord, I will declare my law and write it on your hearts. And all people, all flesh will see the glory of the Lord. Not just those in the tribe, not just those of your clique, of your religious tradition. And that kind of creativity is evidenced in the teachings of Christ. That's the reason why. You can sometimes throughout the course of your normal activity hear your leader speaking these teachings to you, whispering in your ear, reminding you of the call to which you and I are called, this high moral vision that Jesus announced that's so beautifully uh, expressed in the Beatitudes, for example, and all these imaginative parables. He tells one right here. He tells the Pharisees, this reminds me of that time when the father who had the vineyard, here Jesus is talking about agriculture again. That's pretty important. We live in a slap in the middle of an agricultural center, a very important one in the life of this country. We have, I think, a, a real particular uh, call to understand these stories of Jesus. 
The father said to the first son, go and work in my vineyard. And he said, I ain't going to do that. It's hot. It's hard work. Picking those grapes. It's toil. I ain't doing that. And then he kind of had a moment of clarity. And he went and he worked. The second son said, oh, yes, father. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. And paid lip service. And didn't set foot and didn't hit a lick at a snake. Just like those paid religious leaders who talked a good talk but had no intention of walking it. That kind of creativity and integrity is what authority is all about. The integrity of under-promising and over-delivering. If you're going to do that in any sphere, y'all, do it in the sphere of faith. Don't say more than you know. I was having a conversation with a friend this morning. Just make it real and make it simple. Make it plain. Don't over-deliver. And my, 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 my. Uh, don't overpromise and underdeliver. And my, my, how preachers all over the world do that. I said to the early service congregation, preachers do some good but create a lot of problems. You think about it. Preachers tear down, words destroy, words create chaos, not only in our faith tradition but in other faith traditions. And I think about 90% of what I do is clean up after a bad reputation that some preacher has given God. And then humility. Whatever we say, whatever we do, let's do it down to earth. It's what the word means. And I think the reason why the pastors and the bishops gave us this incredible passage out of Paul's epistle to the Philippians connected to this gospel lection read so beautifully in these languages is because it calls us to be of one mind, the same mind. Have this mind. Have this mind. Second B, here's what it means. It means I got to get rid of my stinking thinking and get, as the Alcoholics Anonymous people say, and I've got to put on the thinking of Jesus and you do too and when we do that together we can be side by side in the defense of the gospel as Paul says writing this letter from house arrest in Rome where he's near death and he's writing this thank you note to the church at Philippi for an offering that they've taken up for his missionary work in Macedonia. He knows that there are divisive elements in the congregation that's tearing the church apart. And he's saying you got to have the same mind. Be of one mind. And that doesn't mean the same political party. We leave all that. And it doesn't mean the same economic level. We leave all that. And it doesn't mean the same cultural interpretations. And we leave all that. But it means we have, when we're entering this community, when we come to this table, we are of one mind, the same mind, we have, because we've undergone a brain transplant. Have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not count equality with God 
as something to be, the Greek word is very interesting here. The New Revised Standard Version interprets it, uh, translates it as exploited, as something to be exploited. But it really means when you translate the Greek, something to be stolen, grasped, something to be seized, something that is not yours. Did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but humbled himself, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And I call this outrageous though it is, the descending staircase of downward mobility. God knows in God's creative impulse that the only way to finish the creation is to become us. And the only way to fulfill the prophetic vision of Isaiah that suffering servant Messiah was numbered with the transgressors was in the lineup at the precinct with the mugshot was to become human to submit God's self not only to humanity, not only to slavery, but also to criminality, even death on a cross. This is the humility of God. And when you announce that simple gospel... You too number yourself with the transgressors. And you are only one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. None of this clericalism that Jesus had to fight in Jerusalem. When David, very respectfully, where are you David? Call me Reverend Johnson. I thought he was talking about somebody else earlier in the service. No title here. No standing here, one above another, all equal, radical equality, creativity, integrity, not over-promising and under-delivering, but walking your talk, and humility. I think 65 years ago, God rose up, raised up a church, a church rose up. To, that's seeking to incarnate those values to this very day. I don't want to be idealistic here or to blow smoke up your skirt about the challenges in the life of this church. I think there are many. I think all the churches of Christ are challenged post-COVID. I believe we are in that context. I've gotten some perspective even this past week. I think that's our larger a prophetic challenge as we move forward into the future. We're also dealing with a postmodern sensibility where people believe that all of reality is in the palm of their hand and they can just shape their own reality. They don't need, they don't, the myth, people are being hoodwinked into thinking that they don't need you. You cannot share this bread in this cup. Feel that liquid in your mouth, the morsel that you chew in some kind of Gnostic distraction. It's not possible. It has to be physically felt and experienced. 
We have to be here to get these hugs and these handshakes. And 65 years ago, a church was raised up on these plains that saw that, that saw this equality, that was over against the clericalism of the old Southern Baptist Convention. Y'all, aren't you glad you didn't follow that path? Look at those boneheads today. And a church that decided whatever your station in life, you're going to be important here. At first, it was folks coming in who were single. Early on, Second Baptist Church, I know some of you don't really even know what I'm talking about, but those of us who are long in the tooth remember the time when single Christians were second-class citizens in the body of Christ. Beth, you were one of the ones that helped restore that those single friends to a place of equality. And then a little later, divorce. Oh my goodness, divorce has touched all of us, every single one of us. But at that time when this church was started, if you were a divorced person, you had a big old red D, like the scarlet letter A of Hawthorne's novel. And you were put down and you were demeaned, not at Second Baptist. The program was designed in such a way, the ministry was implemented in such a way here that divorced persons were accorded healing, restoration, and then empowerment in the life of the church. And women, women were second-class citizens. Even in my lifetime, I know some of our young leaders are thinking, ah, that day never existed. Yes, it did. And now there is a congregation on these West Texas plains that sees women as equal to men and gay and lesbian people. Gay and lesbian people made in the image of God accorded equality in the body of Christ just as Jesus would do. If it were not so, Jesus would have addressed that issue. He did not say a syllable about that issue. And here we have a church, even a great denomination, torn asunder over this issue. But here we have a church where folks who are gay and lesbian come into the life of the fellowship and are with us together at the table together. We're not going to lord over them with some kind of spiritual arrogance. We're going to practice integrity creativity and humility and see that all people, the children, I think that's probably the most important feature of our radical humility here is that we bring children to the altar of God and we let them talk. And that's a church that needs to thrive, my friends. That's a church that needs to be renewed. And I'm looking at the people God is going to use to renew this church. It's going to happen. It's going to be incarnated by you. And we are going to lift up the name of Christ in such a way that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We come to the table, World Communion Sunday. Wonderful. We've had these readers read scripture so beautifully and powerfully. We serve each other. David said it. 
You don't have to just take one cup. Allow these beautiful sisters and brothers to serve you two or three times. Linger at the table. Let us take this opportunity to enrich each other and to extend the bread and the cup of Christ for each other. Down in San Antonio, I'll close with this story. We serve communion by intention coming forward. Second B does that too, the lines form. There was a young single mother, a little girl with her about five years old. I saw her that Sunday running all across the balcony. Just the joy of the Lord in church. I love seeing our children run around. Don't stop them. Don't correct them. Let them run. Let them play. Let them smile. And let them... I know, Annie, that was specifically directed toward you. And let, and, and let them shine their joy at us. And we had communion. The young mother came forward, the little girl, and I had the privilege of serving her. And I said, the body of Christ broken for you, sweetie. And she looked up, beaming in a voice that radiated and echoed throughout that entire huge 3,500-seat sanctuary. For me? For me? You bet, sweetie. For you. And you. And you. And you. And you. And everybody else. Let it be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all the people of God said, Amen.